0: The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine
1: is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, Emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think.
0: On the podcast today, Vanguard's biggest moves in 2023 and the latest in the healthcare sector. We will discuss a historic year for the markets,
1: the outlook for 2024, bond predictions, global investing, and much more. That's with our guest, Jeffrey DeMossel from the Independent Vanguard Advisor. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Van,
0: And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are you watching for at the moment, Rusty? We are recording this in the back
1: half of December,
0: just to timestamp the interview,
1: and we are closing out a strong year in the stock market and looking forward to the next. Currently, of course, it's that time of year when the markets are getting reviewed on the year that was and previewed for the year that might be. And today's guest, a repeat guest from early last year, is an ace on interpreting the markets and helping investors stay diversified and invested. He's also arguably the leading independent expert on Vanguard investments. And indeed, his interview last year was one of our most popular ever on The Weighing Machine.
0: All right. Well, let's bring him in. Jeffrey Dimaso is founder and editor of the Independent Vanguard Advisor. Jeff, welcome
2: to The Weighing Machine. Hi, Robin. Hi, Rusty. Thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: Jeff, as you might recall, to get the interview started, we need a walk-up song. And last year, you picked the song Storm by the Yoshida Brothers. Are you sticking with that pick or are you going to add to our playlist? We like our playlist. You know, it's out there on Spotify. It's almost 10 hours long.
2: I do. I spent a good while taking a look at it. Uh, let, let me add to it. Yes. My theory is, is that last one was very much a walk-up song for me. and But you also need a walk-up song. You need to get the crowd a little bit more involved too. So I might have might have missed a little bit on that side of the idea. So let me go with uh, The Man by Aloe Black. Uh, got a nice vibe that I like to it, but also gets you a little pumped up and can get the crowd a little more involved.
1: Yeah, the list got longer. Thank you. Good pick.
0: Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about you. Um, for those of our listeners who haven't heard you on here before, uh, just want to get a bit about your background. So you spent a lot of your career in research at Coburn Insight management, which became part of E-Trade and at Vanguard, Advisor Investments, and you've also spent a lot of time communicating that research. So tell us more about your work and what motivates you to do what you do.
2: Yeah, so you're right. I I started in this industry about two decades ago, and the consistent has been on the investment, the research side. And Actually, Rusty gave me my first foot into the industry as an intern when I was at school, you compounded your mistake by hiring me full time after college. So, thank you very much. <laughs> but the role at the time was really about picking active mutual fund managers and putting them into a diversified portfolio and trying to do that in a thoughtful way. And what hooked me at the beginning was that I got to listen to and ask questions of these very well informed institutional quality portfolio managers. And I was like, you're going to pay me to learn all this and talk to the smartest investors around? Yeah. I'll come in every day happily. And if I can offer a little career hack, was to find a mentor and, and try and go work with them as closely as possible. So I worked at a Boston based firm, and Rusty was in Lincoln, Nebraska at the time, and I went and spent two years with him. Since then, I, I worked with Dan Weiner, who is the co founder of um, Advisor Investments and the newsletter, which we'll talk a lot about. And I got the chance to come work with him in New York. And uh, I spent a little bit longer with Dan now than I did in, did in Lincoln. But that's gonna be my career hack is find the person you could learn the most from and go work with them as closely as possible. Ask questions, don't be afraid to make mistakes, and just keep learning. So for 10 years there, I wore two hats. One was leading the investment team, leading the research team at Advisor Investments, which was a multi-billion dollar RIA. And then the second was Co-writing the newsletter on Vanguard funds with with Dan Weiner, and frankly, I kind of fell into that when I moved to New York. I didn't necessarily expect to start writing, but you know, Dan asked if I wanted to to write an article. Uh, I did, and he took out his big, heavy red pen, and I know that scared some people of the firm before. But I said, "Hey, this is a learning opportunity. Why is he making these changes?" And you know, I just know the importance of of communicating. It's it's this industry is all about helping people and yet we often talk down to people or we use jargon or we make it seem intimidating and and we just kind of put people off a bit. And and Here was someone who was trying to say, no, write for your parents, write for your friends right in a way that other people can understand and again, yes, what motivated me. For me, it's always been about trying to help people and here was, okay, that's what we're doing but now let's think thoughtfully about how we do that and, and how we communicate. And so for the past year or so, uh, I've gone all in on the newsletter and I've been uh, self-publishing the independent Vanguard advisor for 13, 14 months now.
0: Yeah. So tell us more about that newsletter. Um, you talked about the mission of, you know, communicating to people and helping them to understand what what else really drives it.
2: Yeah. So this is, again, I've been self-publishing for a little bit, but it builds on three decades of history. I mean, Dan started the independent advisor for Vanguard investors in the early 1990s, he actually started out self-publishing. It was <laughs> a little more labor-intensive for him, stuffing envelopes on his kitchen table. Where I get to leverage uh, the internet and technology a little more. So kind of same, same kind of humble beginnings, I guess. In that regard, I just get to build on all the history and experience that we have with with Vanguard. But the purpose is the same. Again, I think of it as twofold. One is independent, honest, unbiased coverage of all things Vanguard. Vanguard touches a lot of investors' lives and they have a lot of cheerleaders in the industry and, and rightly so, but as we can talk about, they're not perfect and I'm willing to say where I think they can do better. And then the second purpose, which we kind of talked a bit about, is that investment advice and educating people, again, in a language that they can use and understand. Yeah.
1: Okay. I have one one small add to Jeff's bio there and that was really talking about Dan Wiener, who is an excellent writer. And also, as Jeff said, a very tough copy editor. And it was a bloodbath on all my commentaries that he copy edited. Rob, of course, is also my copy editor and has been for many years. That is also a bloodbath. <laughs> just, just thought I would just point that out.
0: <laughs> but it's fun, right?
1: Yeah, I guess it is. It's good to stay humble. <laughs> so anyway, so Jeff, let's get back to one of your many areas of expertise. And of course, probably one of the reasons why your podcast interview was so popular last year and that is talking about Vanguard. What were some of the biggest events for Vanguard in 2023? Which are the ones that you think investors should care about the most?
2: Yeah. So I think one side for investors is just you what does Vanguard bring into the table um, in terms of funds? And they did expand their lineup this year, particularly on the bond side and particularly on ETFs. So Vanguard launched uh, a short-term tax exempt bond ETF, core bond ETF, and core plus bond ETF. And they're going to have two more municipal bond ETFs coming in January. So if you're an ETF investor and particularly someone that's looking to really access tax-exempt bonds, Vanguard is bringing you more choices. So I think that's a big one to note. The other one is really, it's kind of in the weeds and it's almost one of those things that was a big event that meant nothing changed, which was a good thing. And so this in particular, what I'm referring to is Vanguard got approval to keep buying utility stocks. So Vanguard is so big that they have to get regulatory approval from the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission to keep buying utility stocks. They basically have to say, we're going to be a passive owner in these stocks. And late uh, last year, or late, I guess 2022 it would have been, some of the attorney generals got together and said, Vanguard's no longer a passive owner. They should not get approval for this. And usually it's just a matter of filing the right paperwork and checking the right boxes. And you know Vanguard ultimately did get that approval. But for a while there, there was a question of would Vanguard be able to continue to buy utility stocks, which would have thrown into the question, how do they manage their index funds and all that. So that's a big event for Vanguard. That's probably not on many people's radar. And it's a good thing they're not on our radar because it meant nothing changed.
1: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. All right. So we're going to ask you another question we did ask you last year, and that is regarding Vanguard. What is it that you like best about Vanguard and what do
2: you think they could improve? Yeah. So best is low cost. And I know everybody thinks index funds here, and I'm going to be biased by my, my past with with active funds. But yes, Vanguard has low cost index funds and they've done a great job for investors. They've driven cost down to pretty much zero, whether you go with Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, iShares, take your pick. It's a great time to be an investor. You can access the market for effectively free. But no one competes with Vanguard on the active side. Um, you can get access to some really top-notch managers for 30, 40 basis points, which, okay, isn't three or four basis points for an index fund, but that's a pretty good deal and that's what large institutions get. So I think that's a big win for for investors there. In terms of improvement, it's probably what I said last year. It's Vanguard Service and Tech. It, it continues to fall short of its competitors and I cannot wait for the day when I get to write the article that says, hey, Vanguard has really stepped up their game and their service is firing on all cylinders. Today is not that day. And if I could give a, a small one that's kind of a pet peeve of mine, and this maybe contradicts what I was saying about Vanguard expanding its bond lineup, but sometimes I think they almost give investors too much choice. I mean, do you need three large cap growth index funds? It just leads to paralysis for a lot of investors. Um, I know it's not going to go the other way. There's not going to be a dramatic consolidation, but they're just kind of a pet peeve of mine and that's not... Not limited to Vanguard.
1: One good thing about all those options, of course, is that if only somebody had a newsletter to help people
2: figure that stuff out. If only I will look into that. I'll look into that. <laughs> All right. I also want
0: to ask you about ESG investing, which is uh, continuing to be a hot topic among a lot of investors. What are Vanguard's latest thoughts on ESG strategies?
2: Yeah. So let's Vanguard's in a hard spot with with ESG. So let's let's talk about what they have and, and where I think they might be going and, and what they're facing. So Vanguard has uh, seven ESG funds uh, currently in its lineup today, and it's around $30 billion in assets. On the stock side, they have Social Index, which they've been managing since 2000. So they've been a longtime player in the ESG game, and that was back when we called it SRI. But then they have two ETFs, US ESG ETF and International ESG ETF. So you can split up your US and your foreign exposure with ESG investing in an index approach. And then they have ESG corporate bond ETF. That's where really the bulk of the assets are. They do have three active funds. They're all global, and each one kind of targets one of E S or G. And they're they're all sub advised, so they're all kind of pretty interesting. But if you're you know really interested in you know, say the social side, then looking at the the Bailey Gifford uh, Positive Change Fund might be something to do. And you're going to want to pop the hood on that. Now, where might Vanguard be going? You know, I think a logical next step is an asset allocation strategy. So they've got kind of the building blocks of um, ESG in terms of U.S. stock, international stock, and bonds. So, kind of providing a target retirement or a life strategy uh, ESG fund seems like a logical next step to me. But as I alluded to, Vanguard's kind of faced a lot of pressure when it comes to ESG. And I say ESG broadly; it's really just about how big Vanguard has become and I was talking about this with the utility stocks, just the amount of corporate America that they own and BlackRock and as um, State Street also fall into this too. Um, but they're kind of stuck in this, this between a rock and a hard place really. Like On the left, they're getting petitions and protests saying that they're not doing enough with their ownership and they need to be voting more and putting more pressure to, to pursue these outcomes. And then you know the right side of the political spectrum is saying you're doing too much, <laughs> um, and you need to you need to stop doing that. Um, so that kind of you know big picture, Vanguard's facing a lot of pressure there and is trying to thread the needle and just say, hey, we give investors choice, but they're not totally getting to walk away from that issue
1: either. All right, Jeff, let's move on to the markets. And of course, 2023 was another year with plenty of historic and interesting market events. And of course, you're writing about this all the time and. I just want to give you a shout out. You have really nice, simple, but thorough commentary. And I I really like the charts you use. They're very clean looking as well. So in your opinion, what were some of the top highlights or lowlights for the markets this past year?
2: Well, thank you. And hat tip to my designer, John Hall, for for the charts, if you're listening. But yeah, 2023 is going to go down as a good year for the market. I mean, the S&P is up some 20%. Um, We might hit a new high here and officially end the, the bear market. But there have really been some divergences underneath the market this year. To run through a few of them, uh, growth versus value, so Vanguard Growth Index beat Vanguard Value Index by a wider margin this year than we saw during the tech bubble. Um, Large caps are outperforming small caps by the biggest margin since 1999. Healthcare which we we can spend some time on, but healthcare has trailed the broad market by its widest margin since 1999 as well. Um, so, kind of some really big divergences we've seen, um, kind of bigger than in the past two decades. Of course, everyone's looking at the Magnificent Seven, kind of the you know, seven big tech companies, up some seventy plus percent collectively. While the rest of the S and P is up up five percent. Now, you could probably do that exercise, you know, to some extent, like pick cherry pick your winners and show how much they went up. But just it's it's notable just because they're they're such big companies and they really have been driving the indexes higher. So a lot of divergences in the market. That means that you know even what I would consider reasonably diversified portfolios may be lagging the S and P, um, which is why I think again, as I said, we'll look back at 2023 and it kind of goes down as this good year in the market. But for a lot of investors, it hasn't been quite as profitable. One big highlight has been the bond market. Bonds are actually outperforming st- uh, cash this year, uh, at least um, uh, as as we're recording this. We'll see where the year ends. It's it's kind of close, but after the past two years of bonds losing money, and even times this year, investors were getting really frustrated with bonds. Uh, they're ending on a positive note here, and and investors, investors have earned a nice return on their on their bond holdings if they held the course.
0: All right. Well, let's look forward to 2024. Um, what's some of the guidance that you're offering your readers
2: for your economic and market outlook? Yeah, I, I'm going to kind of apologize here. I don't have as strong of a view today, and at least not as I did a year ago. And I know... It would be better for clicks and downloads if I came out here pounding the table that the market's going to rip higher or that we should all head to the bunkers. Um, but I, I just don't think you need to have a, a strong view, bullish or bearish, every year, as we're not always going to be at a peak or a trough. Now, that said, like my default stance is that the market will go higher. We, we can talk about that. So let me let me take a step back and talk economy for a moment, and then we'll, we can talk the market here. So, on um, the economy, we were all promised a recession this year. Um, heck, I was one of the people saying, I think we're going to have a recession in 2023 and I have been wrong on that. Fortunately, my portfolios <laughs> weren't tilted all the, all one way for, for that outlook. And so what I think happened was, I think a lot of us said, all right, interest rates just went up four or 5% and that's really high and, and that's got to throw the economy off. But I think we were all kind of looking at it through a lens of the past 15 years and saying, yields are usually at zero. There's no way the economy can survive at four or five percent. But go back to the two thousands, the nineties, the eighties, and interest rates of four or five percent actually would have been kind of lowish, and and the economy kept growing. So, look, the economy is not a laboratory experiment, right? It's not if you do this, then we know that Y will happen, right? So if you raise interest rates by percent, then automatically inflation goes down by a percent, and unemployment goes up one. It just doesn't work that way. We, We wish it did; that'd be nice, but. It is not a physics lab experiment, and a lot of the relationships that we look at, like the yield curve, uh, which is just the difference in interest rates between short-term and long-term treasury bonds, or other indicators like some leading economic indicator indexes, they actually all still kind of point to a recession ahead, um, and that was the case a year ago. So these things aren't perfect for timing. They're also just based off of a few data points, and so they're they're not infallible. So they do need to be taken with a grain of salt, but I guess my big point on and recessions to make here is, if, you're, if even if you are still worried about one because of these different indicators, or you just don't buy that we're going to achieve this soft landing, is that the next recession doesn't have to be as bad as the last two. Right? So the last two is COVID, where we flipped a switch and we turned off the economy, and then the one before that was the the Great Recession. We call it the Great Recession. It was the worst since the Great Depression. Like. So we assume that recessions are just these, these colossal, terrible, you know, economic market events, and and I'm not saying they're fun or we should root for one or you know sucks when a, unemployment goes up and people lose their jobs and that's a hardship and I'm not trying to belittle that or make light of it, but just they don't have to be as deep or as severe as the last ones.
1: Yeah. I have a question on your equity allocation. So I know a sector that you've had a preference for is healthcare. Yeah. What is your view on the healthcare sector moving
2: forward? Yeah. So healthcare, as I said, it's just been through one of its kind of worst relative years. And I still think that the sector has some strong tailwinds behind it, particularly when it comes to research and development. You know, The biotech side has been hit really, really hard. And I think that if you look at kind of both the price and then just the innovation that's happening there has got to create opportunity. That said, there's always political risk that comes with the healthcare sector. The other concern with it, or if I'm trying to think and say, why why would I not want to be overweight? Why why do I have too much allocated to healthcare? Would just simply be that healthcare has gone from you know being 8% of our economy 20, 30 years ago to being 20% of our economy. So it's already had this big growth trajectory and it's like, well, how much more can it keep growing? And that's where I think why I'm more interested in kind of the innovative side of it, as opposed to just riding the tailwind of healthcare growing, is kind of saying, okay, we've Again, we're we're creating amazing drugs and treatments, and we're getting older as a population, and there's global demand for this as well. So I think there's a lot of interesting tailwinds for it. But just trying to trying to think about, you know, the whole tide might not be rising quite as much as it used to be.
1: It does kind of seem like we could be entering sort of a, a golden age for healthcare. There's you know so many big things happening where. You know, people are living longer lives and higher quality lives. Not only is that interesting for the healthcare sector, but for the overall economy. Think people are living longer, higher quality lives It's kind of like another way of population growing. If GDP is population growth and productivity, healthcare is helping both sides of that equation. So, economy is getting bigger and healthcare is really driving it. So, interesting. All right. Well, let's move to something the asset class for instead of the optimist is more for the pessimist. And That's fixed income. What is your view on interest rates and how do you think investors should be treating their bond allocations these days?
2: Yeah, so I would say my, my view on interest rates probably should be taken with a big grain of salt. I don't think I have an edge when it comes to making a market forecast on, on short-term interest rates. That said, I, I've been pretty consistent in this, that bonds absolutely have a role for investors' portfolios. Strategically, uh, they make sense and they should continue to offset stock market risk. I know not all the time, you know, 2022, that was an example where, where both stocks and bonds fell at the same time. But over time, and more often than not, um, you can expect bonds to provide a nice buffer. And I think that bonds at 5% were more attractive than bonds at 4%, which is where they are today. Uh, so while everyone's kind of cheering the movement in bonds the past past two months, I would actually say I kind of like the outlook a little bit better a few months ago. That said, I'm not looking to, to swap my bonds for cash. I think you've got to, again, think strategically about where you want to be positioned. And I talked to people about going to cash, and the time might have been two years ago. Of course, cash was yielding nothing then, so it didn't look particularly attractive. So, yeah, look, you, you call bonds the, the class uh, asset class for pessimists, but arguably even optimists could, could look at it. I mean, you're now earning 4%, 5%. That's better than we have had for 15, 20 years. So again, I think it absolutely still has a role in clients' portfolios or, or investors' portfolios.
0: So related to that, are you getting a lot of questions from readers asking if they should basically move their investment funds to money market accounts? And if so, how are you addressing that with them?
2: Yeah, I, I got that one a lot, uh, actually in probably September, October, before interest rates went down. So <laughs> funny how that works is, is people always seem to want to do it and maybe not quite the right time. Look, I, the way I addressed it was... Bonds, again, at 5% are just more attractive than they have been in a long time. And if you were owning bonds at 2% in your portfolio, and that made sense, then while it's been painful to get to this point, then they absolutely still should play a role in your portfolio when they're yielding 4 or 5%. That said, if it's just been really painful and it's too much, cash is also yielding around 5%. And there's always this sense that you need to do one or the other. You know, I'm either going to own all bonds or all Cash is kind of the implicit piece of the question. It's like, well, you don't have to do both, right? Or you can own some short short duration bonds. You know, sometimes you have to be all in. I own bonds, so I own twenty year treasury. Now, most of us don't do that. Same with stocks. If someone says, "Hey, I can't sleep at night in my portfolio," sell some of your stocks. If bonds are keeping you up at night, sell some of your bonds.
1: Another question on the stock market. This time it is related to like the Vanguard asset allocation strategies. So they're known to ha- typically have 40% of their equity exposure in non US equities. I also like to know the Vanguard has this really interesting white paper they've had for years talking about the role of non US in, in equity portfolios, kind of talking about the sweet spot is also, you know, 35 40%. That's going back to the 1970s. I'd almost argue that that sweet spot might even shift to the right a little bit because the U.S. markets more volatile than it used to be because of gross stocks. The world started to de-globalize. So correlations might drop between economies and markets. I've just showed you my cards. But anyway, what is your take on non-U.S. stocks, both strategically and tactically in balanced portfolios?
2: Yeah, strategically, I'm very much in favor of owning globally diversified portfolios, so U.S. and, and non-U.S. stocks. If only for like the simple, just don't put your, all your eggs in one basket, you know? heaven forbid we have something catastrophic happen in the US and you're all fully invested there. I guess I'd kind of think about it as like buying insurance, except in this case, you're still expected to make money, you know, foreign stocks, do still have a positive return expectation? That's not quite like buying insurance there, but again, you're getting diversification benefits there. Tactically, I got like do you need 40% uh, in your portfolio as much as Vanguard says? and? I've seen the white paper as well, where they give that sweet spot. And look, I love spreadsheets as much as the next person. Um but we don't live in spreadsheets. we We live in the real world. And if there's one question I've gotten the most over the past seven years, it's why do I own foreign stocks at all? Period. So for a lot of people, forty percent is going to be a portfolio that they can't own and is going to lead them to have the poor investor behavior. So my portfolios tend to tend to run a bit less than that. Uh, so I just try and manage, you know, or balance the difference between what the spreadsheet says and and what we need to do in the real world. And as for like it's very tactical. Maybe my opinion isn't worth that much. My bold prediction last year with it was that uh, foreign stocks were gonna. This would be the year that foreign stocks would outperform, and that has not been the case by about ten percent or so. So um, there you go. There's my market timing skills. Yeah. All right, good stuff.
0: Okay, well, let's turn now to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And you probably had a few of these, but maybe not all. The first one we have, considering your experience and your expertise, what is currently your favorite investment idea for
2: 2024? Yeah, so the... I mean, I'm really actually positive on my portfolios. You know, they've had a difficult relative year. They've been kind of... I went through all those growth versus value, large versus small... Healthcare underperforming, and we were kind of on the wrong side of all those trades. So if I think the pendulum is going to kind of swing back, we get some mean reversion that might have them nicely positioned. Um, But not just to talk uh, my book, kind of the idea that I've been thinking about the most—that's not in my portfolios today—is real estate, actually. And here I'm thinking more, you know, REITs, commercial real estate. It's just an area of the market that's been really unloved. They've been in or near bear market territory, kind of down 20% or so while the stock market's been nearing new highs. I've always struggled a bit with real estate given how volatile it's been. Um, it doesn't quite match up with what I think the fundamentals suggest. But that's kind of the one idea that's not in my portfolio is that it has me uh, the most curious right now. All
1: right. Another question. We did ask you this last year. And, um, and as we're seeing you here, you look lean and mean. And so, when obviously you've got a family, you've started a business, we asked you how you maintain your energy last year. I mean, once upon a lot of time, I like to think I could run with you in basketball court. I don't think I could do that right now, just looking at you. What do you do to maintain your energy?
2: Uh, well, my, my son keeps me going, uh, I'm a little toddler, but no, I, I found a great community here in, in the neighborhood and we of dads and we play soccer on Friday nights, indoor, outdoors, so it's year round. I've got a friend that I go for a bike ride with every, every weekend in the park. We just crank out a few laps and, and have a coffee. Otherwise, I mean, it's, it's it's, you know, we all try and get as much sleep as we can, try and eat as healthy as we can, exercise where we can. Uh, I'm sure we would all like to do more and better on those three boxes. But if you can ask me for podcasts and stuff, you know, one just it's related to this that I've started listening to that uh, I haven't pulled a tip from, but people might be interested. In it. It's called just one thing. It's a uh, BBC podcast with kind of like health tips and hacks, you know, might talk about the benefit of swimming or the benefits of singing, or why don't we sing anymore? So kind of, I don't know, different little things like that.
1: Oh, dang, that's such a cool idea. That will almost be a good question to have on the podcast that somebody is already doing it, I guess. <laughs> well, cool. And th- since you kind of brought up the question, of course, when I ask you what you're reading, listening to, and watching at the moment, any recommendations for our listeners?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, of course, we have the weighing machine. Thank deal. Everyone should be continuing to listen to that every every week. <laughs> no, but kind of the, the two others I, I would mention, you know, my reading consumption's gone, at least books have kind of come down, but my podcasts, the two ones I've been enjoying recently, one is uh, Hidden Brain, which is kind of blending science and storytelling to talk about our behaviors and our choices and really kind of they call it hidden brain, like they you think we're in control and we're influenced by all these other factors. So that one's always a good listen. And then a little bit more investing related is um, the Morgan Housel podcast. So Morgan Housel, uh, he's the author of The Psychology of Money and he he's, used to be a Motley Fool writer. I think he's at the Collaborative Fund now. Um, I think he's pound for pound one of the better writers out there on on finance and behavioral finance in particular. Um, but he's got a short little podcast. If you'd rather listen to him, talk about it, then read it. So that's a, that's a good take too.
1: That's a good podcast. Have you checked out his new book yet? I have not yet. I've not made it yet, no. Rob even bought the first one herself. I did. She's a more than reader in this,
2: right? Yep. (laughs) He explains things. He's great at storytelling. If there's um, a piece of, um, you know, communicating uh, advice in there, it's it's that he is great at taking stories from different genres and weaving them together nicely.
0: Yep. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for coming back fifth time on the show it's pretty awesome thank you yeah before you go tell us how can our listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing at the um, at your newsletter
2: yeah so two best ways would be um, you can follow me on LinkedIn I post all of our articles at the independent Vanguard advisor there um, we also do have a free weekly brief so every Wednesday we send out a free article with kind of market update Vanguard news update again that is completely free if you don't even want to give me your email, you can just go to our website, independentvanguardadvisor.com every Wednesday and check it out.
1: And that's advisor with an
2: E. It is, although if you put a typo into the, the URL, we'll probably still find It'll
1: you. It'll get you there. Awesome. Jeff, I have one more question for you. Tell me about the picture on your wall behind you. Ooh, which one? The one on top with all the different colors. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, but that one right there.
2: That wall is all just some office artwork that um, Dan Wader provided for. <laughs>
1: All right, cool. I always think it's interesting to find out the art on people have on their walls.
2: Yeah, my other ones, my other walls, which you can't see, have got the, um, like, San Francisco's bid to manage to, like, hold, host the Olympic Games in 2012. So it's got some of their, like, leftover posters that they didn't actually use. So those are pretty cool.
1: And, of course, Robin's and behind her, is also really cool.
0: It's a map. It's hard to see, but it's like a wooden map, which is kind of cool. Flags with all the places we've been. I
1: love it. All the places you've been, your husband's been, and
0: your son has been, so.
1: Yeah. All different color-coded. Almost a world traveler like you, Jeff. I'm Actually, I'm not sure who has traveled more places. Jeff has been all over the world, too. Well,
0: yeah, I've only been to Europe and North America and Africa, so I'm I'm missing some continents.
2: I haven't done Africa yet. I've done Europe, South America, Asia.
0: Yeah, South America and Asia is where I need to go. I just remember Jeff just
1: went to Japan one time, just went there, just up on a train like at midnight, visiting some friends.
2: Yeah, that was, <laughs> I didn't realize they drove on the other side of the road in Japan, but I learned that pretty quickly at one in the morning getting <laughs> off of a train. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Well, Jeff, again, I appreciate you being on the show again. And uh, you know what? I really want to make this an annual tradition. So yeah. we'll stay in touch, of course, over the, over the year and we'll have you back on in a year's time.
2: No, this is great. I really enjoy it. Um, you two do a wonderful job with it. So. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for
0: this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest
1: well and be well.
0: We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And if you like this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion. Thanks again for
1: listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion. First, we have Weighing the Risk podcast, which I host monthly on behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence. This is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top of my concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance. It's New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Daniel Crosby's weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. For more, including commentary, videos, and other great content, Please check out the website Orion.com. Go to the resources drop down menu and find me, plus a wealth of content I create just for you under Thought Leaders. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week.
0: The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Veneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, Please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanman and our podcast guests are solely their own opinions, and they don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.